0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. We are so glad that you're here to worship with us. We center our worship services on the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we are so thankful to be able to celebrate um, His coming and His work each and every week here at Sojourn. One of the ways we do that is we open up His Word every week. We've been working through the Gospel of Mark for a few months now, so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Mark as we look to the greatness and glory of Jesus displayed in chapter 6. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to read this word for us, and you can follow along in your Bible or or on the screen as well. The Word of God says that he went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is God's word as you pull into towns, small towns all across Oklahoma, there, there are signs coming into those towns, welcome to whatever, and then they have, here's what's noteworthy about this town often. Welcome to this town, home of 20 state titles in cross country. Or welcome to Enid, hometown of Miss Oklahoma 2000 whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of claims to fame that small towns will make. Welcome to Yukon, home of Garth Brooks. I mean, they are, all towns are, are trying to claim, lay claim to some notoriety. Here's what's important about this town. Here's our state titles. Here's the people that are important that are from here. Now, I don't think that the small town of Nazareth had a a welcome to Nazareth sign. But if it did, it would have been time to start thinking about putting Jesus' name on there. Welcome to Nazareth, hometown of Jesus. This is the notoriety that they deserve, right? Nazareth was not a particularly significant place. It boasted less than probably 500 people, 500 maybe at the most. So if you're from around this area, think Drummond-type size. That's Nazareth. It's a small place, and it's an insignificant place. It's not along major trade routes. It's not significant in politically or in almost in any way that we could speak in earthly terms at all. It's not highly regarded by people around it. If you remember in John chapter 1, Jesus is talking to a few disciples. He comes to follow him, right? And his disciples go out and say, hey, we found this one. He's, he's the one, we think, Jesus of Nazareth. And they say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what people from Cana, again, another insignificant town, thought of the people from Nazareth. I mean, Nazareth was not highly regarded. And the question is probably, a good one. can anything good come out of there? And yet there is one who grew up in Nazareth that begins looming larger and larger on the scene as we read through the Gospel of Mark, and his name is Jesus. And he boasts a pretty good resume at this point when we pick up in Mark chapter 6. He is taught already in synagogues and, and along the sea with authority. People could hear him, and it was like they were hearing someone like they've never heard before. We've heard authoritative teaching. We've heard from the scribes and the Pharisees. But this one teaches as the authority. The crowds would follow him Where he'd go just to catch a glimpse of him, to squeeze in close, maybe to touch him. They wanted to hear him talk. They wanted to be around Jesus. He's shown his authority over nature. Going into the heart of a storm and just telling it to be quiet when he decides for it to be quiet. He's got a resume that's worth noting. He comes to the demoniac who's possessed not by one demon, he's done that several times, but by a legion of demons, like a number that we don't even know, and he just says, okay, you can leave, and leaves. He's conquered disease, and last week we saw how he spoke into death, and death obeyed his words. He's showing himself everywhere he goes as this authoritative son of God who exercises his power and authority for the good of those around him. He should be the hometown hero of Nazareth. They need to put his name on the sign. They need to have a welcome parade. Jesus is back. Think about all the good he's done, and he's back here to visit us. But that's not what happens. What Mark records gives us an insight into human hearts. Even to our own hearts. You see, in facing Jesus, and being confronted by Him, and being taught by Him, and seeing Him, and hearing Him, the heart is going to respond. And there are all sorts of responses of rejection, and only one right response, and that's the response of faith. So in Mark 6, Jesus returns to His hometown, and Mark tracks that return to show us the reception He gets. Verse 1 It says he comes to his hometown and his disciples followed him. Now hopefully you know a little bit about the Christmas story. Jesus was not born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, in the line of David, as not a son of David, but the son of David, the one who is mighty God, who is going to reign and rule on David's throne forever. That was what was told of him surrounding his birth and prophesied leading up into his birth. And so he wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. And even after Bethlehem, he takes a short stint out to Egypt because his life was being threatened. And only then, after a little while, after a short stay in Egypt, does he come to Nazareth. They don't settle in Bethlehem, they settle in Nazareth. And that's where he grows up, so that's where he spends most of his time in childhood. He spends it in Nazareth. And it's from Nazareth that he goes out to the wilderness and finds John that he might be baptized by John. And he goes out into the wilderness, facing 40 days of temptation and trial... Then he begins his public ministry, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand in me. The good news is, is here, and it's arrived in me. And so now, after starting his public ministry and going about doing teaching, healing, he comes back to his hometown, and he comes with a little bit of clout. He's done quite a few things. He's said some really amazing things. He's set people's hearts on fire. Here he comes with 12 of his disciples. Twelve people are following him. Told people are putting themselves under his teaching, are listening to him, are doing what he wants them to do. He comes as one who, where he shows up in homes, those homes quickly fill up so that there's no room for people. He comes as one who, when he goes by the sea to teach, people crowd around him, they press into him. Sometimes he has to get into a boat not to be crushed. He comes as one who can heal diseases, who can speak into death, who can talk to nature and obey him. He comes with all sorts of clout. He does what no other man can do. He comes as an authoritative teacher. That's probably why they invited him into the synagogue to teach. Because here's this traveling itinerant teacher, and he teaches in a a fabulous way. He's this authoritative teacher. And so they invite him in to teach, and they witness his authority. Verse 2 says, On the Sabbath, he began to teach them in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? You might remember that in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus shows himself and even declares himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. And as the Lord of the Sabbath, he doesn't say, let's forget about the Sabbath. He goes to the synagogue and he gets with those who are gathered there. And he teaches them. And teaching is is characteristic of Jesus' ministry. It's a major component of it. But Mark doesn't record what's taught. He doesn't give us any of Jesus' content in this synagogue. Perhaps this is a parallel with Luke chapter 4 where Jesus comes in to the synagogue in Nazareth, and he goes over and he picks up the Isaiah scroll, and he reads from Isaiah and says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Perhaps that's what he's teaching. Now, Jesus loved to teach about one topic specifically, and that was the kingdom of God, the good news that the kingdom has arrived, and he told parables about it, and he taught on the kingdom of God often. Perhaps that's what he teaches here. We don't know. Mark doesn't give us any of the content. He doesn't even give us any hints of the content. But here's what we do know, is that his teaching, whatever it is, astonishes. Imagine Jesus, who is the Word, and through him, universes came into existence, showing up and speaking in your synagogue. They're astonished. They're in amazement at his words. They recognize it something, as something unique, something that they haven't heard before and they start to ask all these kind of questions his authoritative teaching provokes questions in them and these are great questions where did this man get these things what is the wisdom that is given to this man how how does he do the mighty works that he does he seems to be talking as one who knows the very foundations of the earth like he speaks to my soul as if he knows the very fabric of that soul As if he's speaking right to me and he knows everything about me. He applies truth so pointedly. What kind of wisdom is given to him? It's unsearchable, it's remarkable. Now, these questions could simply be, just like I said, followed, flowing from a heart that's amazed at the authoritative one. But clearly, that's not the tone, that's not the attitude. That's not the response that they're giving. Although the questions in and of themselves may not be bad. The attitude that's driving them certainly is wicked. It's evident for us in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, son of Mary, Are his brother and sister's over here? Do we not know this man? And it says in verse 3 that they took offense at him. So the questions that they're asking aren't just questions. They're accusing him. They're accusations. And they they move too quickly to they're raising these questions, but they're clearly moving to the wrong conclusion about who Jesus is already. Where did Jesus get these teachings? Who did he rip them off of? We know his background, it couldn't have come from him. And who does he think he's teaching anyway? We know you. You're just the carpenter's son. You grew up around here. We know your training. You didn't study under any famous rabbis. We know that. We were around. You were just learning from Joseph, learning how to be a, a construction worker. Maybe these other towns that you go to, they, they, they'll kind of play along with your authoritative teaching, but not us, we know better. Who does this guy think he is, that he would come in and teach us? And how can he do these things with his hands anyway? We know what he does with his hands. He builds stuff. He, he works with his hands. That's what he does with his hands. I don't know how he does this other stuff. But he may be teaching with authority, and it's strange to us, but we know him as just a common laborer. And all along the way, they're, they're, they're making this attempt to try to bring Jesus down to their level, to discredit him, to put him on their level so that they might reject and ignore him. They even make it a little bit personal with some jabs at Jesus through his family. Isn't this the son of Mary? Now, to us, that doesn't sound offensive, but if you remember their culture, you always have a, a person's name followed by son of their father. You remember James and John, when he calls them, they're James and John. And you would probably even know this. It probably comes to your mind when you think about James and John, sons of Zebedee. And you go through Jesus' genealogy, son of. Like the, the, the son would, would be pronounced, would come through the line of their father. The name of the father would be there. It's not what they say here. They say, isn't this the son of Mary. So in that culture, something more is going on. Asking if this is the son of Mary is abnormal at best, but most likely it's a shot at Jesus. And maybe Mary and his entire family could be just a merely disrespectful jab or as bad as saying, and I'll let you fill in the blank, but this is an illegitimate child. And can you imagine the rumors that had flown? We know about Mary. Oh, we know about Mary and Joseph and where they're at. We know that you don't look like your brothers and sisters. It's a little bit different. So is this not the son of Mary? And he couldn't come in here and teach us like this. So not only are they rejecting Jesus and his teaching, but they're taking shots at him and his family. And the summary statement in verse 3 tells it all. They took offense at him. And whether they know it or not, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy in their midst. Isaiah 53.3 says that Jesus was rejected by men. Here he is in his hometown. He's rejected. It's not quite the hero's reception. As those who who knew him as a kid and and, and as a carpenter even. you got to ask the question, why why is he so offensive now? You knew him as a child, didn't seem to be offensive then. You knew him as a carpenter, didn't seem to be offensive then. Why is he so offensive now? We know as a child and as a young man, it says of him in Luke chapter 2, that he just increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. That's good. People around him, when he was gaining stature and favor with them, they didn't dislike him. They didn't take jabs at him. He wasn't run out of town. He had favor. He's a kid that you could look at and you might be frustrated that he doesn't sin, but you're not like upset at him for being a punk. He's not. And so, why such an offense here to Jesus? Now, John wrote a gospel as well follow Jesus as well and while he's not commenting on this particular story I think he nails the problem exactly in John chapter 3 we read that the light came into the darkness and that's the problem in chapter 3 verse 19 John says this is the judgment the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil As a child and as a carpenter, before Jesus' public ministry, the light of Jesus, the Son of God, as the Son of God, was pretty thickly veiled. Remember where we talked about no one comes as a light to put it under a bed? Well, in a sense, Jesus is, is veiled, very veiled, especially when he's young and growing up. He doesn't shine brightly as the Son of God yet. But then he passes through the waters of baptism. He begins his ministry and starts proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. The light starts to shine a little bit brighter. The veil is being removed a little bit more and a little bit more and light is beginning to shine through more and more as Jesus continues to teach and heal. The light keeps shining. The more he teaches, the more he heals, the more is revealed about Jesus as the Son of God, the less of a veil is before him and in front of him. And the light keeps shining brighter and brighter and it does something. It repels the darkness. It offends those who are in the darkness because they love the darkness. And not only are people in darkness, John says, but they love it. They don't want the light because their deeds were evil and they love the darkness. And Jesus' authoritative teaching that they recognize in Nazareth is a brighter light of Jesus than they've seen, too bright for them. They take offense at it. Sure, they were okay with Jesus as a child. They were fine with him as a carpenter, one who was living in their midst and working among them, but they were offended at him when he came as authority. I think it's around this time of year where we might especially find ourselves in a similar place as those in Nazareth. Most are not offended that Jesus was born. Jesus coming does not offend most people. Everyone is pretty okay with Jesus coming as a baby. You Christmas carols are sung by everybody. They're all over. Anybody can sing them. No one's worried about them. It's just part of our culture. It's part of the way we we do things around this time of year. No one's offended that Jesus came as a baby. They can accept him there. We'll sing songs about him even. But what happens when he says that he's Lord? What happens when he starts commanding? What happens when he says... What's required of you is you follow me, that you take on my life, that you be like me. What happens when light starts shining? Not just in general, but in your life. What happens when the light shines into your darkness and your darkness is exposed? Do you run away from the light because you love the darkness? Because your deeds are evil? Or do you receive the light with faith? In need and desperation. You see, one of the reasons that we so desperately need a Savior is that because we are by nature people of the darkness. We have evil deeds and are full of evil deeds, and we love the darkness naturally. We'd much rather cling to the darkness than especially if this bright, shining light comes, we want to flee. We want to be in the darkness because we like it better there. It's more comfortable there. We are by nature people of darkness, and our deeds are evil. We love the darkness, we walk around in the darkness, we live in the darkness, and we don't think that we need any light, which especially means that we need the light. We need the light to uncover all the darkness in our lives, to show us our need, to draw us in to something so much better than what we're living in. It's not enough to be okay with Jesus as the light if we don't let him call us out of the darkness. See, Jesus as the light, he shows us the way. He leads us out of darkness if we would submit to him and he lets us live in the light as he is the light. It's not the reception he gets in Nazareth. What about the reception of our own hearts? Jesus, he goes into his own hometown and his own people, even his own family, and he is rejected. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Jesus to have faced this rejection from this place that he knows so well? From these people that he's so familiar with? Well, he remarks in verse 4, Jesus said to them, "A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own, in his own household." Think of Jesus coming to his own town, and he has to say, "A prophet's not without honor, except in his hometown." Jesus, who in eternity past sat in honor within the Godhead, within the Blessed Trinity. Even after creating, he has angels surrounding him, giving him honor and glory all the time. And he's without honor in the middle of nowhere, a small insignificant town. Jesus, whose father, holy God, honors the son, loves the son, isn't even honored among his own family on earth his own household. They think he's out of his mind. That's what we read earlier in Mark. So Jesus got a tough reception from those who were close to him. Reminding us that proximity to Jesus, that exposure to Jesus, that familiarity with Jesus are no guarantee of faith. Knowing the Christmas story doesn't mean you're responding rightly to Jesus. Jesus. Being able to sing all the right songs and and gathering in churches each and every week do not guarantee that we have saving faith. Just having exposure and familiarity are not the right response that's required of us. Here they are in Nazareth, really close to Jesus in one sense. Not only is they physically there with him, but they know him, they've been exposed to him, they know about his life. But in the most important sense, they're far away from him. How about you? They are full of unbelief and not faith. They hear his wisdom and authority and they reject him. And Mark points out this rejection after the response of faith that we saw in the last chapter from Jairus. Where he says, if you would just come and lay your hands on her. He has faith. He hears about Jesus and he responds in faith. A woman comes up who's been suffering for 12 years because she has some faith. And then right after that, Jesus is rejected in his hometown. In other words, Mark is pointing out something to us. He's emphasizing the response of faith that was there earlier and now is completely absent. He's encouraging us, exhorting us that we might respond in faith because often those who are the most familiar with Jesus were the most hard-hearted. So maybe after hearing the Christmas story over and over and over and over again, you might be in a similar place. This is a warning, I think, for churched folks. That we not be too familiar with Jesus, that we're not struck in awe of him and respond to him in faith. Even Christians need to be careful that familiarity doesn't breed some bad things in our lives. Some coldness, some hard-heartedness. We need to be careful that familiarity would, would produce faith and more faith and not coldness. I think it's worthwhile asking, well, how do we do that? What can we do to prevent the inoculation that regular exposure to Jesus can bring at times? In a way, I think we need to strike the attitude of Jacob. Not remember Jacob? He was coming back to the promised land after some wanderings from there, and he, in the middle of the night, he's by himself, And God shows up and starts wrestling him. Do you remember, Jacob, what he does during that time? He can't beat God. (laughs) He's not a better wrestler than God. But he just clings on. And he just says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. That's the attitude that we need to have. Don't let go until he blesses us. We might be really familiar. There is nothing sinful or wrong with familiarity and exposure to Jesus. We actually think those are really, really good things. But when they're not warming our heart towards him and growing our love for him and growing our faith in him, then we need to grab on and not let go until he blesses us. One pastor in England said this many years ago. A person asked him a question, I think pertains to what we're talking about. What is the way to maintain a close walk with God? How do you keep from being hard-hearted? How do you keep from growing cold to God? Here's what he says. By constantly meditating on the goodness of God. Think of all those. Constantly meditating on the goodness of God and on our great deliverance from that punishment which our sins have deserved. We are brought to feel our own vileness and utter unworthiness. It's a good thing. Think about it, he says. And while we continue in the spirit of self-degradation, Everything else will go on easily. We shall find ourselves advancing in our course. We shall feel the presence of God. We shall experience His love. We shall live in the enjoyment of His favor and in the hope of His glory. Meditation is the grand means of our growth in grace. Without it, prayer itself is an empty service. You often feel that your prayers scarcely reach the ceiling, but oh, get into this humble spirit by considering how good the Lord is and how evil you all are, and then prayer will mount on the wings of faith to heaven. The sigh, the groan of a broken heart will soon go through the ceiling up to heaven, I, into the very bosom of God. He says, if you want to keep from growing cold, then you hang on. You think about the goodness of God that is revealed to you in the scripture and you hang on to that. He says meditate, think over, put some time in that you would hang on to the goodness of God and that you would see yourself rightly as the scripture sees you, as a vile creature in need of a savior and he came. Think on those things. Meditate there. And then what will it do? It will just inflame your heart so you'll draw near to God. You'll want God. You won't grow cold toward God. You'll grow closer to him. You'll want to pray to him. Your your prayers will... Mount on wings of faith all the way up into heaven. When we sense our hearts beginning to grow cold, maybe with familiarity, warm them by the fire of meditation on God's word, on the character and nature of God, and of our own character and nature. Warm it there. You see, our hearts don't need a quick glance at the goodness of God, but the slow drip and deep thoughts on who he is and what he has done. That's what we do Advent for here, is that we would slow things down a bit. And we think a little bit more on what it is that we're celebrating at this time. And perhaps that's what the Nazarenes needed. Like, they're asking some pretty decent questions. They have the wrong attitude there, but perhaps they gave more time to those questions. Like, where does he get this wisdom? Maybe he was there at the foundations of the earth after all. Maybe I should consider his words and submit myself under them. And so, as we celebrate Christmas and a familiar story to most of us, what we need is not just a quick touch on who Jesus is and that he came as a baby. We might need the the long, slow work of meditation, of just thinking about what it is that we're celebrating, thinking about why we needed him to come. We'll need something more than a quick touch. So, I love that he points out here's part of the means to keep your heart from going cold. Go to God's word and think about it and and let it lead you into prayer towards your God. It's all movement toward him. You're hearing his voice. You're having his ear. But there's one more means that I think we need to point out that keeps us from the inoculation of growing cold. In Hebrews chapter 3, the author says this in verse 12. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, because there can be. It's a possibility. And so how do we get out of it? He says, you could have this heart that could lead you to fall away from the living God. So here's what you need to do. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how do we keep from being like these, this hometown of Jesus, from where we have this familiarity and exposure to him that makes us grow hard, hard-hearted and cold toward him? We're going to need one another in that. We're going to need each other to exhort one another that we might not grow hard-hearted and that we might not be carried away by the deceitfulness of sin. We need one another in the fight of faith. We need exhortation. We need to exhort. It's the ministry of one another. It's part of the means God has given to us that we might not grow cold in our faith. Martin Luther said this way. I read this last week as well. But at home, he says, in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. Ever been there? Seems like I'm I'm meditating, I'm trying to pray, and there's just no warmth there. And what does he say? But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. You know why that's true? Because that's part of God's means for doing that very thing. That works because that's the way God designed it to work. That sometimes your heart is cold and it needs the warmth that others bring. That's why he says, exhort one another. As long as it's called today, we're going to need one another in this fight to keep our hearts loving and faithful toward the Lord. So we need to grab hold of the means that God has given us. Grab hold of his word. Think about it. Grab hold of prayer. Push everything to the Lord. God, I'm cold. Help me here. My prayers seem like they're hitting the ceiling. Help me here. Grab on to prayer. He's given it as a means for you to call out to him as Father and cry out, Abba, Father, help me. He's given you the means of community. And so we need to strike the posture of Jacob in all those places. Grab hold of the word and don't let go until he blesses you. Grab hold of prayer and don't let go until he blesses you. Grab hold of one another and don't let go until he blesses you. We're so certain that he surely that he will. That's why he came. He wants you to know him, he wants you to love him. He wants the response of faith from you. He wants to keep your heart in love with him. He wants to keep you. That's why he came. Don't be long away from the gracious means that God has given us in preserving our faith and love and warmth for him. Nazareth's reception was anything but warm. And it leads to one of the more shocking and I think confusing statements in this entire gospel in verse 5 it says that he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hold, he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Man, he could do no mighty works there? Is that something you knew was said about Jesus? In a way, Jesus is fulfilling what he said in chapter 4. Verse 24, he says this. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use... It will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. Here's the measure that they're having. They're receiving him with rejection and unbelief, and it's being measured out to them. You could do no mighty works there. Their reception of Jesus is being measured back to them. Their hard-hearted reception of Jesus are preventing mighty works being done among them and in this town of Nazareth. He will not force it. And it's not as if, when we look at verse 5, as confusing as it is that Jesus is unable to perform these works. He jumps into the middle of a storm, he tells it to be quiet, and it listens to him. He he finds a, a man possessed by a legion of demons, and they do everything he says. He heals a woman who's suffered for 12 years. He goes to a girl who's dead, and he tells her to get up. It's not as if he can't do it, as if he's physically unable to do it. It just seems that he wouldn't exercise his power under these circumstances. He wouldn't do it with their unbelief. It's blocking the very power of God. And I think a good question is, how can you bless a people and a town like this with all the things that he's been doing in other places under these circumstances with their unbelief when they are completely rejecting the blessing? How could you bless them in other ways when they're rejecting the blessing itself? I think one author has it right when he says where the kingdom of God is rejected, it's inappropriate for the king to share its new life and joy. As if you have part the, in the blessing when you're missing the blessing. The right response to Jesus is faith. And I think that's what Mark is getting at. That we might not respond that same way. This is how bad it is. A, he wouldn't even do mighty works among them. That's no good. Mark is calling for a response with faith. A right response What good is the rest if we don't respond to the blessing, the King of God, the Son of God, with rejection? What good is the rest? Faith seems to be clearly Mark's emphasis. Mark places this rejection right after two stories of faith. Where Mark emphasized two desperate cases that came to Jesus in desperation and faith. And in many ways, Jesus' reception in Nazareth was the opposite of the reception that he got by Jairus. And the woman who had been hemorrhaging blood for over 12 years. And here's what Jesus told Jairus when it looked like all hope was lost, verse 36 in chapter 5 Don't fear, only believe. This is what he requires, this is what he wants. Jesus is after faith, he's after belief. No matter what the situation and scenario is, that's what he wants. Jairus said, okay. He responded with faith. He kept going along with Jesus. He listened to Jesus' authoritative word, and he put himself underneath it. And Jesus goes to his house and heals his daughter. Nazareth is doing the opposite. And we get this conclusion in verse 6. That Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled. Now, there's not many times in the Gospels that we, we hear of Jesus marveling and being astonished. There's a few. One's of a centurion's faith, he marvels at that the guy says, You don't even need to come, just say the word, and you'll heal him. He marvels there. Here, he marvels at unbelief a marveling you don't ever want Jesus to have. He marvels at their unbelief. Earlier, in chapter 6, they're astonished at his teaching. He teaches as one with authority. Now the astonishment has switched places where Jesus is now astonished. He is now marveling at their unbelief. And I'll remind us that this is Nazareth. This is not Corinth. Known for its rampant unbelief and sinful lifestyles. Celebrating its sinful lifestyles. This is not Athens. Athens where you're full of these unknown gods that they'll just bow down and worship. This is not Rome. This is the very hometown of Jesus. One commentator says this, that the people of Nazareth enjoyed so many advantages. The Son of God had lived among them in childhood. He had preached to them with power. He had carried out some miracles. You notice that in verse 5, right? That it's like, he can't do anything because of such rampant rejection and unbelief, and yet he still could do something. No... His power couldn't be blocked completely and fully. It's as if he's spreading the seed in a field of rejection and there's still some that bears fruit. No, he'd he'd preached with power. he carried out some miracles. But they were blind to his identity, deaf to his message, and hardened their hearts against him. And the amazement that Jesus shows in response toward their unbelief and rejection should grab our attention. Perhaps people gathered in a church on a Sunday, it should especially grab our attention. Mark adds that Jesus was rejected in Nazareth so that no others, no matter how familiar and how much exposure they've had to Jesus, so that no others would follow the tragic path that these followed and be marveled at by Jesus because of their unbelief. It's as if Mark is saying what was said several times in Scripture. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like those in Nazareth. Don't reject Jesus, don't just hear him. Don't just know that you're familiar with him and have exposure to him. Respond to him in faith. This is the son of God. That's what Mark is saying to us. Don't reject Jesus. Respond to him as the son of God. And the only right response to the son of God is to humbly submit to him in faith. Jesus came and he faced rejection. He fulfilled prophecy that Isaiah said that he would be rejected by men. He's rejected by his hometown, by his own household, from those very people that he created. But Jesus was rejected so that any, any who would believe in him would be eternally accepted. He faces rejection so that others might be brought in and brought close. So today, church, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Rather believe in the Son of God who came. Would you bow with me in prayer?
1: God, we first want to, as Dylan recommended, we want to meditate on your goodness, from the top, from the ultimate things that you've given us that, and have done for us that last forever, that are eternal, and all of the earthly good. Guide our minds, God, we want to think about how good you are. God, thinking about your goodness also reminds us of our sin and how bad we are. Will you show us our sin, God, and the things that we have done, the things that we've said, the attitude of our hearts and our thoughts, God? I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, reveal those things to us now as well. Jesus, this is who we are and you came for us anyway. Thank you so much for the abuse and the rejection and all the brutality that you would receive on our behalf. Don't let us miss the point of Christmas, Lord. I pray that your light would not get buried in all of the other things that we can make it about, and God, I pray that we would be able to sneak away and find a place to, to do this, to reflect on you, and to meditate on your word, and to give you thanks. It's not a... A one-time event. Um, We want to be like uh, Charles Dickens said of Ebenezer Scrooge after his conversion. It says that he kept Christmas in his heart all year round, and I don't know what all of that means, but God, we want to keep joy in our salvation in our hearts all the time, and we want to always be mindful of both how good you are, And how much we need your help, not just on that day that we die, but every single day. We need your help. We need your grace. We need your joy. We need your love to come out of us. And God, I pray for those here today who don't understand what the carols are about and whose hearts are not full of joy when they think of you coming to die for them. God, will you show them who you are and grant them faith and repentance? And Lord, for those of us who believe and love you, we have tests coming to us over the Christmas season. Just in the nature of all the things that we do, we will be crammed into cars, some of us, for too long. Cars full of sinners. We will be crammed into houses full of sinners, and some that we're not in that close of contact with uh, the rest of the year. And there will be all kinds of opportunities to be selfish, and to be sinful, and to have dark hearts. Will you protect us from that? And will you help us to love our family members, even though as Jesus experienced in this passage, they are some of the hardest people to minister to, Because they know who we are and where we came from, God. But they're also the people who can see the changes more clearly as well. Because they knew who we were. So you give us deep love for some of us, many of us, literally, our brothers and sisters. And our moms and dads and our cousins and other relatives. Give us love for them. And I pray that our joy in you and our love for you would be contagious that we would be able to speak freely of the hope that we have within us, and that this Christmas season would truly be a time to magnify your glory and to sing your praises and to point and shine light at who you are so that a dark world can see it. Use us for your glory this Christmas, Lord. Thank you for coming for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.